Father, in that hymn that we have just sung, that beautiful line, my Saviour loves me so, he will hold me fast. And Lord, as we come to your word now and as we see you dealing with your people that you redeemed, as you As we see you, Lord, dealing with them patiently and kindly, we pray that these truths may embed themselves in our hearts, that we will know, each one of us, that our Saviour loves us so, and he will hold us fast. So, Lord, do quieten our minds and our hearts now as we come to your word. Speak to us, we pray, for Jesus' sake. Amen. About three or four years ago, Uh, me and Bobby Warrenberg used exactly the same illustration in the sermon in the morning, the sermon in the evening. Now, Bobby was preaching in the morning, I was preaching in the evening. He used a brilliant illustration about the Queen that I was going to use in the evening. And it was the most frustrating thing that we'd actually prepared totally independently, and yet many of the themes that we were dealing with were pretty much identical Now, it's not quite as bad as that today, but when Sam started this morning by bringing out the books he'd been reading, I thought, oh no, I'm going to start like that tonight with the books I've been reading. And then when he began his message, I thought, you know, there's overlap here with what we're going to consider this evening from these chapters that Enoch and Annie read to us from Exodus. Now, I am a great fan of Tudor detective novels. Now, Sam goes back to the 1970s, so in my leisure reading, I'm going back to the 17th century, so you can see perhaps how current I am in my thinking. But there are a number of authors these days who are writing those, these kinds of books. They're, they're set in the turbulent times of Henry VIII and Elizabeth I. I've gone through the Matthew Shardlake series. If any of you want a good read on holiday, a hunchback lawyer working in London at the time of Henry VIII, solving crimes. But now I'm enjoying the company of one Giordano Bruno, S.J. Paris's Italian ex-monk, who works as an ambassador for the French court uh, at the time of Elizabeth I, but is also an agent for Sir Francis Walsingham, who was the Lord High Executioner, if you like, for Elizabeth And in the current novel I'm reading, set in Plymouth, Bruno rescues a poor boy from the harbour. The lad falls in, he can't swim, and in a flash of an eye, Bruno dives in and rescues the struggling child and sets him on the bank, and the boy runs off back into the slums of the dockyards, and Bruno, albeit wet and dirty, continues his business. Now, we can view our relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ a bit like that sometimes. He rescues us. He gives his life for us on the cross. He rises again. He ascends to heaven, and that's it. We believe the truths of the gospel, the great act of salvation. We believe God is sovereign and great. No problem about that. We believe all we're hearing in this wonderful series about God's mighty acts in Exodus. But actually, will God be with me and help me every day? Is he really interested in me? He's so great and vast and other. He's almighty, yeah, I know that, but is he willing? And I would suggest to you this evening that this is possibly the most crippling lie that Satan tells us. Not that we deny God is sovereign and great and omniscient and omnipotent, but actually, 
Is he really interested in little me? The things that wake me up in the early hours, the aching void that is left by the loss of a loved one, the very fragile financial situation I find myself in, the difficulties, difficulties I'm having at work with that colleague or with my parents' failing health or the awkwardness with this person and the trouble I'm having with bringing up my children or the problems of everyday life that I'm not as young as I was and I get tired and does God really care? Will he be with me and will he provide for me? The Red Sea was great, Lord, but what now? Now here is where the Israelites learn and where we learn the answer to that question. Israel has crossed the Red Sea, we heard about that last week, and will now stay in the wilderness until the end of Deuteronomy. And it's not until Joshua chapter 3 do they cross the Jordan into the promised land. And as the Lord leads his people into the wilderness, he tests and delivers them in ways that show what he is doing and how he continues always to rescue them. Rescue is daily. And God is taking his people by the hand, teaching them patiently and lovingly about who he is and what he has in store for them. But it's not only God testing his people, it's the people testing God, even, as we shall see, putting him on trial. And the people grumble, and they grumble because, as we shall see, essentially what they do is use their own understanding of their circumstances to define how they live, to govern how they're going to walk day by day. And they need to learn that even though they're in the desert and there is no food and there is no water and they will be attacked by their enemies, God is way above their circumstances. And God uses these occasions not here to punish his people, but to teach them something about himself. And we see echoes of Egypt and the plagues here. And we get glimpses of Sinai, that great momentous event in Israel's history where God comes down gives his law and instructions for building the tabernacle. Now, undergirding all this, as we'll see in the next few minutes, is God's care for his people, that he will hold them fast, as we have just been singing. He rescues and redeems every day. The people he has taken out of Egypt, he will bring home. Every day, he is faithful. So let's just look for a minute or two at these four stories that Annie and Enoch read for us. And we'll wonder at the grace and faithfulness of God in spite of the ignorance and rebellion of his people. So first of all, water at Marah and Elim. Chapter 15, verses 22 to 27. Three days has passed since the Israelites have crossed the sea. Now their situation is critical. After a number of days now, the water skins are empty and death from dehydration was very likely and very imminent. And they see water. And you imagine how they felt when they saw that water. They go to that water, they bend down, they start scooping it up and it is absolutely vile. We used to keep fish. And when you change water in a fish tank, you get a hose and you suck on it And just at the right moment, you then put it into the bucket and the water comes out. Problem is, if you don't take the hose out of your mouth at the crucial moment, you get a month of water full of fish waste in your mouth. Now, I don't know whether it was anything like that, but it was certainly 
awful and grumbling begins. And Moses cries to the Lord, and the Lord enables Moses to perform another water miracle. And he acts in a way that echoes what happened to the Nile in Egypt and the Red Sea a few days earlier. The wooden staff for the first two and another piece of wood for this. And God shows again his control over the waters, turns the Nile into blood, parts the Red Sea, and now water that could have brought death to God's people brings life. Now look at verse 26 with me. Moses said, If you listen carefully to the Lord your God and do what is right in his eyes, if you pay attention to his commands and keep all his decrees, I will not bring on you any of the diseases I brought on the Egyptians for I am the Lord who heals you. So you see there the connection to Egypt, turning the sweet waters of the Nile, the life-giving Nile, to blood, and here the bitter waters, sweet and opposite. If you obey me, says the Lord, and follow my ways, you won't suffer the plagues. I am the Lord who heals you. And see how God is beginning to give them a glimpse of his law, the glimpse of Sinai, the glimpse of trust and obey, for there's no other way. You remember that old hymn? Some of you do, I'm sure. Trust and obey, for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus. When we walk with the Lord by the light of his word, what a glory he sheds on our way. While we do his good will, he abides with us still and with all who will trust and obey. It goes right back to this. If you trust and obey, says the Lord, I will not bring on you any of the diseases that I brought on the Egyptians. So the turning of the bitter water sweet lets the people look back and see where they've come from and a trailer, if you like, for the law gives a glimpse of future hope and their relationship with the Lord and eternal rest. If you do what I say, says the Lord, you trust and obey, I will not bring on you the plagues that I brought on the Egyptians. And what God is telling his people here Stick to me and you will never live through the horrors of Egypt again. But if you don't do what I tell you, although, no, you won't go back to Egypt, you'll live as if you were still there in slavery and bondage. So the first thing the Israelites do when they cross the Red Sea is not trust in the goodness of their God, not believe that he would be with them and care for them. And God is extravagant in his goodness. I would love to have had a few days at Elim. I mean, what a spa that would have been. And you've got here another trailer of the lush land of Canaan, the land that God promised to the patriarchs, which he's prepared for his people. And Elim, like the bitter water turned sweet, an opposite of the harsh wilderness, and a taste of things to come. So then, well, the foretaste of paradise at Elim fades, and the people plod on towards Sinai, and we have this story of the manna and the quail. And they've had a great time at Elim. They've seen what God can do. The bitter water turns sweet, and then extravagantly this, this lovely few days with the palm trees and the water of Elim. And a month in, and they are literally bellyaching again against Moses and Aaron. I mean, their charge against the boys is ridiculous. Look at verse 3 of chapter 16. The Israelites said to them, if only we had died by the Lord's hand in Egypt. There we sat around pots of meat and ate all the food we wanted. But you have brought us out into this desert to starve this entire assembly to death. Yeah, right, sitting around pots of meat and eating all that they wanted in Egypt. 
The only thing more amazing than their hard hearts is grace here. Because God does not punish them. He literally rains down bread from heaven. And if anyone ever asks you, I don't see the grace of God in the Old Testament, just point them to this. With no hint of anger, God provides for his people again. But there is a trust and obey action this time. Look at verse 4. The Lord said to Moses, I will rain down bread from heaven for you. The people are to go out each day and gather enough for that day. And this way I will test them and see whether they will follow my instructions. On the sixth day they are to prepare what they bring in, and that is to be twice as much as they gather on other days. Will they follow God's instructions? And here you've got another one of those pointers towards Sinai and the giving of the law. And the first reference to the, first reference to the Sabbath in the Old Testament. And it's not a restrictor, but a blessing, a day of rest where they will have enough food. They won't have to go out and gather. But God giving them manna and quail is not just a test or to fill their bellies. Look at verse 6. Moses and Aaron said to all the Israelites, in the evening you will know that it was the Lord who brought you out of Egypt, and in the morning you will see the glory of the Lord, because he has heard your grumbling against him. Who are we that you should grumble against us? Now, the provision of food for the people of God is the glory of the Lord. I think this is very telling, you know. The provision of food comes from the very heart and presence of the Lord himself as he appears in the cloud. When did they last see that? That incredible event when the waters of the Red Sea parted and here the glory of the Lord is seen in providing that manna and those bite-sized chickens for them. Now, God is good for the massive acts of salvation, isn't he? Isn't he? And also for meeting our daily need. And hence why one of the main statements in the prayer that Jesus taught his disciples is, give us this day our daily bread. Now, they don't wake up in the morning to millions of frogs, flies, gnats, locusts, and at night, no impenetrable darkness or disease or hail, there is rather a plague of manna and quails. You see again the reversal from Egypt. I mean, people have speculated what manna is. Uh, the secretion of an insect, I read in one book, that it could be like lembas, which was Tolkien's elven bread, which kind of like a sort of pocket-sized, very nutritious, super-powered energy bar. I don't know. It doesn't matter, does it? It was intensely nutritional, very tasty, wafers made with honey. That does sound good. The food is God's good gift to his people. Not to be hoarded. You see, God has to be trusted every day. A lesson they and we need to learn every day of our lives. Israel must always depend on their God. And dependence on God, of course, is one of our core values as a church. And we dare not forget it. And God has brought them out of Egypt that they may serve him, and they must learn that as servants of God, they are bound to trust him. And the dependence on God is underlined. If they do keep it back too much manner, it goes moldy and smelly. But on the day, on the day before the Sabbath, they gather double and no worms. And verse 27, notice this, nevertheless some of the people went out on the seventh day to gather it, 
but they found none. Some of the Israelites didn't think they needed to take any notice of the God who has saved them, so they go out anyway. We might think, well, they're just daft. But no, God does come with a stinging rebuke. He says in verse 28, How long will you refuse to keep my commands and my instructions? And this becomes a pattern in the wilderness. And throughout the whole of the Old Testament, that the people rebel in the face of God's clear instructions. Before, the emphasis was on Pharaoh obeying God's commands, but God has won the battle against Pharaoh and redeemed his people, and the Israelites are now his. And God wastes no time in reminding them of that fact that lack of obedience will have consequences. It's interesting that Danny was talking to us, wasn't he, a couple of weeks ago about the significance of Passover. This meal was vitally important. It looked forward and was designed to teach future generations about the God who would save them. And we'll eat, in a while, bread at the Lord's table. We look back to the death of the Lord Jesus Christ, but we look forward to when he will come again. Now, manna tasted of honey. That's one thing we do know about it. And the promised land was to flow with milk and honey. So when you ate manna, you could literally taste the promise. And two litres of, ma- of manna was put in a jar and to be placed before the Lord to be kept throughout the generations. So God is acting here in ways that have far-reaching purposes. It's not just to provide a hearty breakfast for his people, but God teaching his people something about his grace that is to be passed on from generation to generation. Something about his grace and his care. Now we come to another water miracle, and and it's easy to flick over this one and think of it basically just as a repeat of the first, but it is not a repeat of the first. Now, Rephidim is the last stop on the way to Sinai, and again the Israelites are thirsty. There's no water for them. And like Pharaoh before them, how many times do they need to see God's mighty hand in action before they trust and obey? Now Moses cries out to the Lord, but with deeper desperation before, and you can imagine the burden that he bears. But God is patient again, and another wood and water miracle takes place, and the people are saved. Now, the potted manna will remind them of God's goodness for generations and generations, but the names here given, Meribah and Massa, meaning testing and quarreling, are to remind them through the generations of their own lack of trust. But there's a greater significance here. Meribah is used in legal contexts with a meaning to bring a case against. Now the move to stone, he says they are almost ready to stone me, he says. In that he's been tried and found guilty actually of treason against the Israelites. If you don't provide water, Moses, we are going to stone you. And the people want a trial, really, and God, the just judge, will give them one. And the problem is it's not Moses that's on trial, it's God himself. Why do you test the Lord? Literally, why do you put God in the dock? Now, God is accused of abandoning his people to die in the desert. And Moses needs to go ahead of the people 
with his staff and the elders of Israel. Look at verse 6 of chapter 17. I will stand there before you by the rock at Horeb, says God. Strike the rock and water will come out of it for the people to drink. Now that is amazing because surely man stands before God. But in this instance, God takes the place of the accused and stands before man. Ring any bells? God stands by the rock and Moses strikes it and out of the rock flows water. The rock is struck and out from it flows water. God is not guilty, of course, but he bears the strike. As God himself, as it were, is struck and water flows out, what do we see here? but a picture of the Lord Jesus Christ, the blameless Son of God, who was struck for us, and the result, living water. Mention that again in a minute. So fed and watered, now the people, well, you think there might be a reprieve, but never a dull moment in the desert, and the marauding villains, the Amalekites, turn up at Rephidim. I would love to have more time on this, because it's a fascinating story. But we're looking at it, are we not, in the context of God's daily care for his people, that he will hold them fast. He will never let them go. The trouble is, you see, grumbling against Moses and letting their own circumstances be the yardstick by which they measure everything isn't only a lack of trust, it's positively dangerous because there are plenty of enemies outside the camp to worry about. The defeat of the Egyptian army did not put an end to hostility towards Israel by any means. And if this lot, the Amalekites, succeed and wipe the Israelites out, the Exodus may just as well have never happened. Now God has rescued his people from Egypt. He's given them water twice. He's given them food. Will he now let them be decimated by these godless thugs? Now look at Moses' hands. More importantly than what angle, you know, you can read about, you know, did he hold them high? Did he hold them like this? That really doesn't matter here. What are they holding? They're holding again this staff, the wooden staff. And Moses' hands and staff have enormous weight in the Exodus story. Moses holding up his staff triggered a number of the plagues, divided the Red Sea, caused the water to spring from the rock. And the hands and the staff represent God acting through his agent. God acting through Moses. In Exodus chapter 7 and verse 17, we read this. This is what the Lord says. By this you will know that I am the Lord. With the staff that is in my hand, I will strike the water of the Nile and it will be changed into blood. The Lord speaking. When Moses lifts up his hands, they are, as it were, lifted up to the throne of the Lord a symbol of prayerful dependence. And Israel wins the battle that day. Now, let's pull all this together a bit. I hope the point has been clear through our tour of the desert, a very brief whistle-stop tour, I may say. And the point ought to be sinking in for us by now that God is with his people. He does not leave them. He's utterly faithful. You'd have to be a complete fool to stop trusting God. And the central theme of this passage is God's faithfulness, his care for his people, in spite of their lack of faith. 
God redeems, God redeems Israel from Egypt because he is faithful to his promises. This morning with the children, we, we learned Yahweh means God keeps all his promises. And the desert is hostile territory, and we are on a journey, and God's world, it is God's world, but it is hostile. And he is in control, even, even though sometimes it's not obvious. And like the Israelites, we mustn't let our circumstances define us. Our gaze must always be not on where we are now, but where we are going. And we're too prone to judge our circumstances by our stomachs. It's what the Israelites did in the desert. We asked, well, why didn't they trust God to help them and provide for them, especially after all they'd seen him do already? It's not, it wasn't just simply a lack of faith. They had the same problem that I've got, and I dare suggest you have as well, the age-old enemy of self-centeredness. They define themselves by what they see around them, whether it's lack of straw for making bricks or the advancing Egyptian army at the shores of the Red Sea. The Israelites don't react in the way we would expect people to who have seen the great and mighty acts of God. And I see myself, we see ourselves so often, don't we, as the center of everything. And nothing is more important than our needs being met. And this is where we need to get to grips with the heart of this, that Christ and Christ alone is our bread and water. He is what we really need. And in this very practical set of stories, we see that God is for every day, and we see glorious hints and shadows and pictures and trailers of what is to come. And Paul highlights this when he's telling the Corinthians, look, your, your ancestors in the desert, they all ate the same spiritual food and drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that accompanied them, and that rock was Christ. Christ was in the desert. He's the rock, the rock that spilled out that life-giving water in the desert. And as Jesus cries out in John 7, Let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as Scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from within him. And that woman from Samaria who came to the well of Sychar where Jesus was there and asked for a drink. Her whole, whole life was defined by her circumstances. Why she came at midday at the blazing heat. You'd come in the early morning or late at night on her sixth relationship. And the Lord Jesus says, I will give you water so that you'll never be thirsty again. And the reaction of that woman, come see a man that told me all things that ever I did. Is this not, this, is this not the Christ? And that living water flowed into her from the Lord Jesus Christ. And of course, Jesus is the bread. John chapter 6, he feeds 5,000. He provides food for a mass of people who've been following him. He's not just filling their stomachs, but teaching them about who he is. He's their source of life, their food. And they feed on this living bread. If they do that, they will live. And the people asked Jesus, what sign then will you give us that we may see it and believe you? What will you do? Our ancestors ate manna in the wilderness. As it's written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus said, look, it's not Moses who's given you the bread from heaven. It's my Father who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is the bread that comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Give us this bread, sir, they say. And then Jesus says, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry, and whoever believes in me will never go thirsty. 
You see, unlike what the world offers, the Lord Jesus fills us up with bread and water that lead to eternal life, not junk food that might taste great for the moment, but does us no good. So much is geared to our personal choice and our personal freedom today. To be yourself, to live as you want. I did a mental health first aid training course the other week. Much of it was very useful and enlightening. But what came across again is that how me is utterly central. Utterly central. And it's so easy for us to get caught by that. You know, a free person, a really free person, is somebody who is content whatever their circumstances. And the Lord Jesus Christ addressed this issue in words that would have been as relevant for the Israelites as they were when Jesus spoke them as they are for you and me tonight. Don't worry about your life, about what you will eat or drink, about your body, what you will wear is not life more than food and the body more than clothes. He goes on to talk about the birds of the air and the Lord feeds them and are you not much more valuable than they? Can one of you by worrying add a single hair to your head or an hour to your life? So don't worry saying what should, what, what should we eat or what should we drink. Seek first God's kingdom and his righteousness and all these things will be given to you as well. Did the Israelites really think they were being led out into the desert to die? Well, that, yeah, they did. And the reason for that was that they didn't look past themselves and their own needs, and they turned their frustration on Moses and on God, or they could see that their needs weren't being met. Now, the Lord Jesus doesn't let us go during our desert march. He has bought us at a great price, and he will take us home. He heals the water that is bitter to show himself as healer. He gives manna and quail to show himself as provider and the one who establishes rest. Sabbath for his people. He gives the water of life and then in military victory, it's the Lord himself who is the ensign, the standard. It says the Lord is my banner, but really it's, it's like a standard that is held high, that represents the Lord himself as the victor. And in these everyday stories of food and water, we see tremendous pictures of new covenant blessing, don't we? The water, the bread, the wooden staff, the wooden cross. So let's end where we began a few minutes ago. Giordano Bruno pulls the poor boy out of Plymouth Harbour, rescues him by putting himself at risk and at great personal sacrifice. Now in the book, he sends him off back into the slums. But instead of letting him go back into the slums, supposing he takes this poor boy home and has him washed and clothed like a gentleman, gives him the best food at his table, takes him into his household, provides for his education, and adopts him as his very own child and cares for him every day. Now there's a picture. And what is the fundamental promise that God gives us in the Bible? The promise that is most repeated. I will be with you. What is the most frequently reiterated command in the Bible? Do not be afraid. And so when we see the Lord dealing with his people in the wilderness, when we perhaps hear them say, the Red Sea was great, Lord, but now what? Well, the now what, the Lord says, is me. You've got me, says the Lord. 
What the people had then was God. In every circumstance, every difficulty, every challenge, every threat, every minute of every day, they had Yahweh, the one who keeps his promises. The covenant God, the faithful Lord, who would never leave them nor forsake them. And us, exactly the same. God has not changed. But perhaps we have a clearer view than they did of what is behind all that. The Corinthians glimpsed it when Paul said that Christ was in the desert. And we'll let Paul have the last word when he says to those Philippian Christians, my God will meet all your needs according to the riches of his glory in Christ Jesus. Let's just pray before we sing. Our Father, we thank you that you are the same yesterday, today, and forever. We thank you that you held your people fast in the desert, even though they grumbled and rebelled, even though they sinned against you. We thank you that you provided water for them, manna and quail for them, deliverance from their enemies. We thank you that you even allowed yourself, as it were, to be put on trial and provided them with that water from the rock. And Father, as we live our lives in these days, We pray that we will never doubt your care. We will cast all our care on you because you care for us. And Lord, help us not to grumble and not to rebel in our hearts and not to think that we're the center of the universe and that it's our comfort and our circumstances that are the most important thing. But help us to look to the Lord Jesus Christ, the author and finisher of our faith, who went before us, endured the shame of the cross, and now sits at your right hand. Lord, help us in these things, we pray. May we not forget them, for Jesus' sake. Amen.